Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Karasimovich, a PhD student in Russian lit. This week, I found out that my fire department was doing a fire safety demonstration uh, not too far outside of my window, and for a moment today, I thought all was lost <laughs> as I saw smoke coming from the parking lot across from my window. <laughs> Did you feel strangely okay with it? Yeah, I mean, it, it was fine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, uh, in addition to that, I am Cameron Lalana, and guess who has two thumbs and realized yesterday morning that I've been paying for uh, Adobe and Hulu for well over a year without using either of those services. Huh. Yeah, this guy. So, (laughs) yeah, it was good. I really enjoyed that discovery. Anyway. (laughs) This is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a Hulu subscription or two. This week, we're going to be taking a look at some more Mikhail Bulgakov in his novella? Short story? One of the two. It's called Morphine. We're reading from a collection called A Country Doctor's Notebook, which you can buy if you're interested in through our affiliate links on our website. Yes, and if you'd like a say in what we're going to be reading next, maybe more Bulgakov, maybe we just become a Bulgakov podcast, you can head on over to... It probably will be. Probably will. Within like five months, we'll get there. We'll just start talking about Master and Margarita and never stop. Never gonna uh, stop. <laughs> well, you can head on over for maybe changing the direction, maybe, you know, making sure this is the direction we go at, at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. For as little as $3 a month, you can keep your favorite Russian literature podcast running and join in on fun events like movie nights on Discord. If you're not interested in Patreon but still want to help us out, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. Oh, sorry. (laughs) I was thinking of a bit in my head and then I forgot that you were done with it. (laughs) Now it's too late for the bit to be organic, so I'm just going to move on. But thanks for the updates. (laughs) That's the bit now. That's the bit now. I'm literally reading off of a script and I can't even keep it straight here. Well, before we get into the reading today, Matt, what are you drinking this evening? The answer is uh, something I've had on the podcast before, but that I'm excited to drink once more. It it is uh, the Ninjas versus Unicorn Mm -hmm. double IPA from Pipeworks Brewing here in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, It it comes in a pint, which makes me feel big and powerful, and it is uh, an 8% beer, which makes me feel ready to record this podcast. (laughs) How about you? I am drinking something much less creative than that. I like yours a lot. I picked up some soju yesterday after I came home from a dinner with some coworkers. So I am today drinking uh, Jinro soju, which I'm drinking carefully because it's it is 25 percent. So we're not going to try to get black out the podcast. Not going to try, but may succeed. <laughs> well, yes, that we never know. Who who knows the future? None of us. Well, maybe this no. the spirits do, but that was a pun. Shh. I, I realized only belatedly. Shh. <laughs> Don't tell them about the spirits. (laughs) Okay, well, speaking of seeing uh, manifestations based on your consumption habits, let's talk about morphine. Yeah, as I say, I don't don't know how this will transition into it, but man, you nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, morphine. Matt, can you talk a little bit about this text that we're going to be getting into? Yes. uh, Like I mentioned earlier, this is published in a 
at least where we're reading it from, a collection of Bulgakov's short stories called The Country Doctor's Notebook, which is largely a pseudo-autobiographical series of short stories based on Bulgakov's time as a doctor, as the title indicates, uh, when he was just really out in the middle of nowhere uh, working as a doctor. And uh, a lot of the short stories just kind of kind of deal with being a doctor in the 1910s, having uh, little to no equipment, uh, little to no anything, and people having really se- <laughs> severe things to have to take care of. But th- this story that we're reading, Morphine, is a, is a little bit different. It's uh, a story, well, as, as Cameron will delightly summarize, uh, about a doctor who develops a morphine addiction. Much like some of the other stories that are based on his own experiences, morphine is at least partially based on his own experience after uh, the outbreak of the First World War. He volunteered as, as a doctor. He was working, I believe, with the, the Red Cross, and he was sent to the front where he was injured several times. And while he was suffering from these wounds, he had long-term effects as a result of them. And uh, to help ease the pain, he injected himself with morphine and he became addicted to it. And this is kind of the same similar timeline is represented in the book, which I would love to talk about in a little bit. But he used for about a year and I think in about 1918, he stopped using morphine. He allegedly did not ever use it again. And this book was published about eight years after that in 1926. And it's... Uh, a little bit of an account of, I think, kind of what it was like to be to be alive during that time, which was not easy. And that's my little background on morphine. Thank you. This book deals with the, the realities of being a morphine addict indirectly, mostly through journal entries. But it, I don't know. I don't know exactly how to describe it. it the, 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 what he's trying to describe feels very, it doesn't feel like something like this is a writer trying to come up with something. It feels very personal in that regard. So that is something that I find very interesting about this. But yes, so Morphine has two point of view characters, essentially. One who shows up only through through a diary. We open up this novella through the perspective of a Dr. Baumgard, who is working kind of out in the middle of nowhere currently. He's been moved around as of late, and we're following his day-to-day life. Um, he's It's an interesting point of view character. It does a lot with... Um, it conveys a very... It conveys an interesting character with very little time in, in the ways that the writing reflects kind of a thought pattern in terms of what he's paying attention to, what he's not, when thoughts roll off. Through the days, he eventually receives a a letter from someone, a letter actually written on the back of a a prescription, a prescription for morphine. He's kind of looking at the, the prescription and he thinks, uh, this is a 4% solution of morphine being prescribed. I'd be like, who on earth? Would prescribe that much morphine that's that's crazy that's wild and he turns it over and he this turns out to be not just a prescription but actually a letter that has been written on here and it's from uh dr polyakov who replaced dr Baumgard in a in a former position in the town kind of out in the middle of nowhere and dr polyakov says hey uh you know please forgive me for writing this on a prescription but i'm really ill and i've only been working in your district for about a month but in you know, in the name of our past, and they're kind of they have a distant friendship. Please come and, and help me out, uh, if only for a day. I, I really I'm not doing well. I need your help. And if you uh, could please not tell anyone else about the contents of this letter. Um. So Dr. Baumgard says that sounds pretty serious, and he goes to get um, permission to leave, which he does. 
But the permission takes about a day to get to him. And by that time, uh, they find that actually this is no longer needed uh, because Dr. Polyakov has shot himself. He is brought to the uh, the clinic where Dr. Baumgart is working. And they have a moment to, to briefly speak, but really only just enough for Dr. Polyakov to hand Dr. Baumgart a, a diary. And in the diary, there's, there's a, a note in the front for Dr. Baumgart, which says, I'm not going to wait for you. I've changed my mind about having treat, treatment. It's hopeless. And I don't want to suffer anymore either. I've had enough. And then he, he expresses to Dr. Baumgart that I leave this as a warning to anyone else who might start dissolving those fine white crystals uh, because I put too much trust into them. And Dr. Baumgart says, okay, well, let's take a look at this. And the, most of the rest of this short story is written in a diary format. And in, in light of summarizing that entire series of events, I'm just going to give you a basic um, rundown and read a couple of quotes from The Changing Days. Basically, we find out through these early diary entries that Dr. Polyakov is suffering from a couple things. He's a little bit sick and also has a, a sort of emotional sickness. His wife left him, and he's very, very bitter about that. Very bitter. Um, <clears throat> in order to help him with that, that the well, physical sickness, uh, his, his feldchair, his kind of his nurse, Anna Kirilovna, gives him a shot of morphine to help him with that, which, great. He feels nothing bad at all anymore. And he's like, oh, perfect. This is awesome. I've got a couple more injections. I'll just keep you know, taking them just in case I feel a sense of, you know, pain. May as well as get rid of it. And he remarks upon at this point, it would be a very good thing if a doctor had the opportunity of testing many a medicine on himself. He would then have a completely different understanding of their effect. After the injection for the first time in recent months, I had a good deep sleep without any thoughts of the woman who deceived me. So that's that's going on there. So he keeps taking morphine, and this this brings him to some highs and some lows. He notes that at the, throughout his diary, on some days, absolutely all, un, all unpleasant sensations cease. If I hadn't been ruined by a medical education, I would have said that a man can only work properly under after an injection of morphine, which is not what you ideally want to hear from your doctor. No. He begins to have more trouble with his moods, especially yelling at Anna Kay if she does not provide him with more morphine, which she is clearly having some second thoughts about. But he writes after having outbursts, I'm calm now. I'm calm. And he eventually comes to the point where he says, well, yes, I've got a bit of a habit, but a little habit isn't morphine addiction, is it? No, that can't be. <laughs> yeah. And this, this denial that he has in addiction eventually turns into him saying, well, no, it's actually not a problem. It doesn't affect my capacity for work at all. On the contrary, I live all day on the nocturnal injection of the day before. He takes two per day, one in the morning, one in the evening. I manage operations magnificently, and I give my word as a doctor that my morphine addiction, note the change in terms here, has done my patients no harm. But all the same, for this six months that he's now been addicted to morphine, he has seen no one but his patients and his feldshare. This basically continues down a spiral as he continues needing more and more uh, morphine in order to have the same effect and, and notes that it's really, it's not having the same numbing effect it once had. And in fact, when he's no longer in morphine, he's beginning to feel a sense of pain, which he needs that morphine to relieve. He is growing increasingly paranoid when people are looking at him as he orders more morphine. He gets the sense that they know, even though there's, it's clearly not what's happening there. He does try to get help. He goes to Moscow to see um, a psychologist, but this is also happening during the early days of the revolution. So there's a lot of shooting in the streets, and he eventually, out of a sense of fear, flees the the, the clinic uh, 
And for some reason, the psychiatrist, even though he threatens to, does not actually report the man for his very obvious morphine addiction. He returns to this this town he's been working in, and he just, he cannot get things right. Eventually, he is transferred to the, the town to Dr. Baumgard's old post, far away from Anna Kirilovna, who has been helping him before, but his, his situation is really getting much worse. He needs it to function all the time. Even when he's on it, he doesn't feel good anymore. And um, he, at this point, decides, I really need help. And he writes to Dr. Baumgard before realizing or deciding that it's really not worth it. And at that point, decides to shoot himself and pass on that notebook to Dr. Baumgard. At the very end, we get a little postscript from Dr. Baumgard who notes that it's been some number of years since he first received this diary, and he no longer really knows what to think about it. But now, at this point, he no longer has much of an emotional reaction. And he asks himself, do I have any right to, to publish this, to let others see this man's private life? And he asks himself, can I publish these notes given to me as a gift? I can. I'm publishing them. And he affirms his decision as one made necessary on the basis of the fact of morphine addiction being a not altogether uncommon ailment for physicians of their era. And that, in short, is morphine. How did you like morphine? I know I was the one who recommended it, so I'm always curious how you felt about them. It was a super interesting character study. You can really tell that Bulgakov is pulling from his personal experiences, especially the justification for the taking of morphine. And it shows that uh, Bulgakov's talent as a character creator in creating a really vivid life, not only just on the page of the diary, but what is imagined in between journals, what leads to mm-hmm. this week missing here or a month missing here or one week saying him saying, I don't have an addiction, I have a habit. And then two months later saying, well, yes, it's an addiction, but I'm not hurting anyone and going between calm and, and dealing with all these emotional states in such a way that really brings this vividly to life. It, it does not feel like a piece of fiction. It does read like you're reading exactly what it is presenting itself as the, the actual diary of, um, a man who's addicted to morphine tracking his his spiral over the course of the better part of a year. Mm-hmm. So I really liked it in that regard. I thought it was a great piece of character character writing and an interesting interrogation of that of that addiction of that addiction. Mm-hmm. Yes, but you were the one who suggested it. So what what kind of brought it to mind for you? I'm curious. Well, there are a few things. I would say the main thing is my takeaway analytically from it and Mm. how i read it i think it's an interesting piece perhaps to pair with heart of the dog that we read two episodes ago now uh just because i feel like it's uh it's a little bit more nuanced maybe it's Mm. a little bit less on the nose in a lot of ways uh it's one that i well i mean maybe you you probably picked up on this first time but for, for me this story is really actually more about the turmoil of living in this period. And I'm not saying that to, to minimize the effects of the character's addiction, but I think that the mental state of the character really is reflected by the actual physical state of Russia at this time. Mm. And I would say that mostly because I think the way that the diary is written is supposed to point you to that i feel like that is kind of the clue to uncover as you're reading through it and i was i was paying attention to make sure my theory lined up this time and it definitely does so that's i guess good for me because otherwise i don't know what i'm going <laughs> to talk about here uh, um, um but but the diary starts kind of you know it starts in 1916 kind of kind of brief there's not a lot of pre-morphine 
kind of action, but he kind of starts when there was presumably quite a great kind of sense of tension in Russia, 1916, 1917, obviously 1917. Um, and he really starts to go downhill in February of 1917 during the February Revolution. And he completely just, I mean, the story just, it's really fast downhill once you get to the fall of 1917 um, when the provisional government's overthrown. And there is kind of in between these these two, or I guess towards the, the first part of it, um, where the diary entry reads, Rumors of great events. It seems Nicholas II has been deposed. I shall go to bed very early. The, it's an interesting bleeding of the real-life biographic events kind of mixing with the personal and I think that that is a struggle for the character because there's this really interesting tension actually between society and the individual, which is present in, uh, well, a lot of writers who did not enjoy living in the Soviet Union. Uh, and there's this, there's this one thing that the, the character as an addict and the character as an individual kind of have in common, and that's this whole thing that he has when he's going to try to get the morphine he's trying to figure out like why he feels this deep sense of shame and he says but why after all should i have to hide and feel afraid i'm behaving as if the words drug addict were branded on my forehead whose business is it besides mine for heaven's sake and there's just i think throughout this whole thing this really interesting you know again the the relationship between society and the individual is important for well, it's important for basically everything, uh, but especially during uh, the Soviet Union, Soviet literature, that's an important and interesting theme to kind of take a look at. And it's it's present here. And I just, I don't know, I thought the story did a really interesting job of doing that in a way that actually felt kind of subtle. It maybe, as compared to Heart of a Dog, uh, it wasn't just, you know, whacking you on the nose with a newspaper about it. You know, it wasn't just as in your face. <laughs> right. That that is interesting. I hadn't I hadn't thought about that the first time through, but I I could see how you could take the I mean especially, certainly the advantage of having a more obvious meaning to read, but which is not not an, I mean I think that I think loses meaning in light of your theory. It just is interesting to explore uh, those experiences, perhaps layer onto other feelings that feel comparable. Mm-hmm. I think it is supposed to be layered just because I think that in and like the very first page that the overall narrator he says for myself i realize now that i was happy in that winter of 1917 that headlong never to be forgotten year of storm and blizzard <laughs> yeah that's how i describe years that i'm really happy in totally <laughs> same sort of thing <laughs> yeah, that, that is interesting i had i had another question for you so i don't know if there's anything anything to make of this but i noted that you i saw that you had put this in your notes as well Oh, okay. So you're taking a question from my own nose to re-ask me. <laughs> well, I had, I had the question in my mind, and I, I I thought, is this a stupid question to ask? But then I looked at your notes and saw that you'd also noted like something vaguely related to it. I'm wondering now. I'm wondering, is it a stupid question, or is it a stupid question we both thought about? <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, lay it on me. At a certain point, our our, our friend Dr. Polyakov mentions Leo Tolstoy. Uh, so he's he's on morphine as he's writing and he compares his experience to a character from war and peace petra rosov rosrov who experiences something similar and he kind of notes leo tolstoy is a remarkable writer which is just kind of a, a bit of a weird aside and it's in and of itself but i couldn't help but 
uh, I was just wondering if there's any connection between the our, our, our friendly Anna Kurilovna or Anna Kay, as she's referred to throughout for the majority of the book, who uh, our our doctor, Dr. Polyakov, comes around to fall in love with in a weird way, uh, more so as kind of a codependent figure dependent on her providing the morphine, which she tries to avoid doing, but feels a sense of obligation clearly over the sense of the book and taking care of him as she was the one who introduced him to the morphine. Uh, do you think there's anything more there at the Leo Tolstoy bringing up in the Anna Kay, or am I just tracing down um, ghosts as I, I because Anna Karenina has thoroughly rotted my brain? Well, I think Anna Karenina definitely just stays in your brain forever after you <laughs> read it. But I, 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 I don't know exactly what the point of it here is, and I have a few theories, hmm. but it is has to be 100% intentional just because you don't make a series of references like this and then it doesn't mean anything uh it's, especially in russian literature it's just it's weird to make in russian literature if you think something's an anna karenina reference it probably mm. is that's just kind of how it goes and <laughs> I, I think it's interesting that that uh Polyakov uses uh and his full name for uh, part of the diary entries and the earlier part of the diary entries but then generally speaking later in the diaries he just refers to her as anna k and you might just read that as uh, a man who is just uh, shortening the name and that you don't ascribe anything to it and that might be fair as he starts to succumb to his morphine addiction maybe that's just easier to write a name that's shorter I would say probably not, especially considering he devotes a whole paragraph to uh, uh, Leo Tolstoy. <laughs> it seems like it just seems like if you're going to give a, a pretty well, a pretty long paragraph to to Tolstoy uh, and our good pal uh, Petya Rostov, that if you're going to do that, that it's intentional. And another reason that I think it's clearly intentional is. The fact that Anna uses morphine in Anna Karenina, mm. uh, starting later in the book, and I, I just think it's. Uh, See, so I don't, I don't know exactly where to go from this, but in, in s some ways, it's a flip flop of what happens in Anna Karenina. I guess instead of the. Well, see, I see. I don't even really know how to draw this comparison because they're just like such different works. Uh, but but I have a few theories okay. one of them is that tolstoy kind of potentially now i'm not saying i agree with <laughs> i'm getting caught up in, in a web of my own thoughts here <laughs> so when i when i talk about what i think tolstoy may have done i'm not saying i agree that this is 100 percent what he did or that i agree with the, the the gist of it but one of the things i think he could have been doing was he could have been giving an actual kind of physical attribute to Anna's moral deterioration after she cheats on Karenin. It's possible that he, you know, wrote in the morphine to show kind of a, a physical deterioration as well. That's a possibility. Here you have the character who actually in contrast to that is physically corrupted, I guess you could say first and then there is this kind of mental debate that he has this whole time of, uh, can I actually serve my patients? And because 
1917 Russia? The answer is, yeah, I guess it's better than nothing, so why not? Uh, but as you're kind of reading it today, you're like, wow, that's kind of a disservice <laughs> to your patients that you're serving when uh, you're admitting that you can't even keep your hands from uh, like shaking uh, and that you can focus on nothing except the morphine uh, that you're continuing to treat patients. And it's not super clear here, but the patients that uh, he he is treating are, well, if you read the rest of A Country Doctor's Notebook, which I suggest you do, it's super interesting. It's not great, I gotta say. Not a great situation for people being treated. So, on the one hand, there's this kind of dilemma or relationship between moral and physical and how those kind of interplay. The second thing I think that I could see is potentially as he gets further into this this morphine addiction, there are a lot of things that start to happen, a lot of side effects that start to come with that, the illusion. The hallucinations, the cravings for morphine. But one of the things that I think that ties back with my original theory on his kind of relationship to the revolution is that I think it could be some form of a mental temporal displacement potentially. Um, and now this is this is reading pretty far into the text. This is basically just conjecture at this point. And no one's conjecture except my own, but I think it's interesting because I think this is actually a text that it gives you room to do this kind of weird stuff, uh, and I think it's fun. And I and so what I'm saying is that I think potentially his just yearning for pre-revolutionary Russia is so strong. He's kind of projecting this 19th century, you know, the golden age of Russian literature, and by extension, the golden age of Russia. He's projecting that onto his reality. And that's far out there, and it's not really supported by the text. Like, you can make an argument that it is, but, like, you know, it's not the most supported claim I've ever made on the podcast. It's just something I think is interesting, because I, th- I think that this story kind of lends itself to those kind of mm. conjectures, actually. Yeah, that's true. So not a stupid question, by any means. That's that's fair. Just I'm just curious, yeah, where that goes. That That is very interesting. I, I did also remember, as you were talking, that there's a certain point where another... Uh, Feldscher, who when when Dr. Polyakov is in the new location, jokes with him and tells him a story, which is supposed to be funny of of a of another Feldscher who suffered from a morphine addiction, who uh, when she couldn't get a hold of any more morphine, used to take half a gas glass of laudanum, and everyone else is laughing, and he writes, "I didn't know where to look during this agonizing story. What's funny in that? It's hateful to me. What's funny about it? What? I left the pharmacy with the gate of a thief. It's uh, <clears throat> also." I, does bring to mind again that Anna was taking laudanum later in the book, so that's another uh, another point, a finger back in that direction. But it also could be, I mean, on the surface, it is an, an interesting examination of that sense of deceit that comes from living a sort of double life like that, or a life where you're trying to conceal something from the people around you that could be affecting that work, and the the mental discomfort it, it that comes from existing almost as if you are a, a thief in, in your normal surroundings, which I think you could also tie to your other theory of uh, his <laughs> displacement in the new reality of the uh, after the revolution. Yeah. I was just wondering what you thought about the structure and form of this, because it's, it's definitely a little bit different than, I mean, if you're going to compare it to the other Bogokov thing we've read on the podcast, right. Heart of a Dog, to get all the journal entries it's weird. It's different. It's kind of cool. It's interesting. I like it a lot. 
it feels like when you read some older books, I mean, what's coming to mind most, most is Dracula. How when you read some novels which are written in, in diary format like this, I'm, I'm sure there's more to be said about that styles of writing and how they come in and out of history. I think it, it does create an interesting effect because obviously Bulgakov is a talented writer. And even when you're out of the diary sections, when you're just coming in and you're getting the perspective of Dr. Baumgard, who is, I, I assume the POV is like directly in his head. A lot of what you're following are his thoughts as, as things are happening, or as he walks into a building, for example, and his thoughts will kind of jump from one to the next, and he tries to reflect that in the text. Um, that's just a fun, interesting thing, which I don't see super often. It's even in like POVs, you're supposed to be someone in, directly in someone's head, conveying a sense of character through that. Um, I think that there's a certain advantage in, in just the whole... The, the, the sense of it being a diary provides a sense of freedom in that it, it does provide... I guess a reasoning in, in like in book reasoning for why the thoughts are travel as much as they do, which gives him more space to play around with the feelings, the emotional, like the emotional reality of what this character is happening as some diary journeys are about the news, Nicholas, the second being toppled or how he feels the vomiting he's been having that day. And other sections are written as if they are a sort of play him talking to Anna and, and dipping in and out talking about Leo Tolstoy and, him speaking with um, Anna Kay as his ex-wife, who is portrayed by uh, the character M. Neris, uh from a, a play that she was she was an opera singer, so that's the character she had played. As, as Omneris is singing in the background, him speaking to Anna in these kind of weirdly trippy, not visuals, because that's not really what's happening here. It really is written like a stage play in that part. It allows a lot of creativity in that and to explore a lot of the, some themes in uh, it. I, I don't know. I think I think it's a really interesting format on that front. I, what do you think about the format? I think a, a couple of things on the format, actually, just kind of mm. historically as well as what I was thinking about a little bit, um, because I did a lot of, well, I don't even know, if, you can't really draw this comparison necessarily, but for me myself, I do a lot of research on Russian futurism, and one of the really big things that comes through futurism and modernism is really that starts to come to the forefront and is utilized extensively by these groups is the fragment and this gives almost a i want to call it almost like a pseudo fragmentary approach because it's a the diary where pages are ripped out of it so there's really interesting thing and this is like several layers of layers because you have a guy publishing a diary that has been edited by the guy whose diary it actually is so you have this interesting effect of the re- as the reader trying to figure out like the I guess the truth of it, uh, what is what is true, what has happened, how has these how have these pages that have been ripped out, how does this affect my understanding of what is actually happening? And I think <clears throat> I think my reading of it is that the is that Polyakov kind of tears pages out to in a sort of self preservation to to take out things that make him look bad. Uh, and that's kind of what it's, you're led to believe. But there's, I don't know, there's all sorts of reasons that could cause someone to do that. There's a lot of a lot of different reasons. Um, that's, I guess, like, someone could look bad. So when, when it's just like, oh, there's, like, this many pages torn out, I'm kind of like, well, what was torn out? I want to know. Um, and there's this interesting kind of tying it back to futurism and fragments and and whatnot so it's kind of this almost fragmentary approach 
uh, to storytelling, which is is reminiscent of, I would say, probably older forms at this point, because this was published uh, 2526. Um, and this is probably when the fragment starts to kind of leave Russia. And you're actually, 1925 is when the great socialist realist novel Cement by Fyodor Gladikov is published in 1925. And so you're getting back into the novel epic as the as the form that is going to take hold in the Soviet Union. So it's a it's it's just interesting to see historically for me as somebody who studies literature like the battle of forms very broadly speaking and and what ends up winning out. I wasn't going anywhere specific with that just to say that like you get an interesting effect I think at this time in the Soviet Union in the mid 20s where you have a lot of like competing things happening a lot of competing currents of literature and, and art and you have somebody who's almost going back in time to use an an old form against the current of some of the new well, they're not really newer forms national epics not new at all perhaps new in the sense that it's being repopularized at that time yeah i don't know where i was going with that but uh something to think about really dinks your doink i think you're doink <laughs> yeah the, the, this is a little out of left field, but it's something I've been I wanted to talk about. Uh, I guess it's not really connected to most of the rest of the story, so there was really no good place. Um, but so one of the things that really sticks with me from this story is kind of late. This is towards the end of the diary, I think, almost at the the very end. But this is at the point where truly the doctor realizes, Polyakov realizes that he's he's suffering, that this is really an illness, and even morphine itself is. Uh, only a temporary relief from the withdrawal of the very morphine he's on. And, and he writes kind of angrily about the way doctors talk about what he's experiencing. Uh, and he writes, I haven't experienced hallucinations, but regarding the remainder, I can say, oh, what a tame, banal words that say nothing. A state of depression. No, having fallen sick with this dreadful illness, I warn doctors to be more compassionate towards their patients. It's not a state of depression but a slow death that takes hold of a morphine addict as soon as you deprive him of morphine for an hour or two. The air is insubstantial. It can't be swallowed. There isn't a cell in the body that doesn't thirst. For what? That can be neither defined nor explained. In short, the man is gone. He's switched off. It's a corpse that moves, yearns, suffers. He wants nothing, thinks about nothing, but morphine. Morphine? Death from thirst is a heavenly blissful one in comparison with the thirst for morphine. This is probably the way someone buried alive tries to catch the last insignificant little air bubbles in the coffin and tears the skin on his chest with his nails. This is the way a heretic at the stake groans and stirs when the first tongues of flame lick at his feet. Death. A slow, dry death. That's what lies between those professorial words. A state of depression. And that's something, maybe this is kind of personal for me, and this isn't super literary, but I, so I work in a, in a psychiatric clinic, and of course, this is only natural over time, you, even though I'm, I don't have a medical background, I start to pick up some of the, the lingo, and when I'm describing things, just for the sake of, of, you have to convey a lot of things pretty quickly, using a lot of lingo, using a lot of shorthand, uh, even to, to talk about particular things that are going on. And, well, it, it, it has its uses. I'm not saying it, it doesn't. It's a great way to convey things very shortly between people who understand what these mean. It does also create a sense of detachment from what's going on, from what you're describing. And that's kind of a, a struggle for me to remember sometimes 
um, if I'm not actively talking to someone that when I when I'm saying something or saying, you know, X, Y, Z, R, X, it's not just words I'm throwing out into the world, but real there, there are people there's there's a human story underneath each one of these cases. And while, you know, medical terminology, again, they're useful. It can also create a kind of distance between you and the people that you're working with. Um, especially if they're not directly in front of you. So I, I think this is really, it's really interesting. And I remember I read, it, I read an article, and I'll see if I can find this and put this in the show notes, um, which was kind of talking about the place of morphine in the world. It was, it was more broadly about um, morphine addiction in, in this era. But it does, it, it did make the argument that uh, more industry-specific literature needed to be written by doctors uh, who have experience and can write fiction and in literature that rings true, that as it comes from real experiences, um, in order to help other doctors or even lay people better understand these things or share kind of these kinds of wisdom. And I think this is one of those cases where this is, it, of course, this is a story, but this is almost a real, uh, it's, it's a real uh, ask of people who are reading this to remember when we talk about people uh, that we may use shorthand, we may use labels, but it's not just that. It's a feeling it's a life it's a a deep uh, very difficult to describe thing that someone's going through and there's like you know a need in all of us to kind of recognize that um and it's something that we can we can often use and even outside of this context just remembering when we're looking at the world that people and experiences are not just labels but something that's vaguer and much harder to define that's what a lot of this um collection ends up being about is Boyakov's beef with medical terminology actually and like um medical school as it was back then and basically a lot of these stories are about how he was just woefully underprepared for actually having to to do anything hands-on and how he has to kind of learn like he's not bashing learning by the book necessarily but he is definitely saying in a lot of these stories that learning should also be accompanied with hands-on learning because there's no substitute for knowing what a feeling feels like i guess in some ways and knowing like how to actually perform an operation and you know it's just everything is much different than it is actually described and it's amplified probably most in morphine when he's going through the disease himself and not you know, it's not just like he's performing an operation. He's like, oh, I have to figure it out. This is much different. It's much more personal, much more individual in this story. That's why I like it. It's good. Yeah, it was super interesting. It, was, it very, really held my attention the whole way through. I, I'm really, I, when I have some time, I really want to go through the rest of uh, A Country Doctor's Notebook. Um, because it's it's kind of it's wet my whistle. I'm mm-hmm. I'm interested, but be that as it may, I think that's about all we're looking to cover in this episode. So, Matt, I I gotta ask you on a scale of one to Yeltsin, how drunk are you? I feel like I gotta be a solid seven because I think I've missed every <laughs> cue I was supposed to do from the script that we're reading from. You handled episode. it with grace. <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah. it's graceful. It's, a difficult it's job, graceful, but, we, we but some, you know, someone has to do it. 
Um, I would say that I'm uh, I'm probably also a seven. I keep forgetting that I'm drinking a very high ABB ABV beverage, and uh, just like swig Mm -hmm. it as normal. So I have gotten up there over the course of the episode, as you may have figured out from my kind of disjointed thoughts on medical terminology towards the end there. Okay. okay. Uh, But (laughs) yes. (laughs) So my inability to pay attention aside. What are we going to be reading next time, Matt? Now, now that I've implanted it in everyone's mind already throughout the episode, which was just an absolute seamless plug, but also kind of relevant to my point, so it's okay. We're enhancing the literary um, element of this podcast by introducing features like foreshadowing into the very podcast itself. <laughs> Basically. No, next episode we're going to be reading the first half of Cement by Fyodor Gladkov. And we're going to be doing just a dash of contextualization from Katarina Clark's study, The Soviet Novel. So I would highly recommend, if you've not read Cement, which I am guessing, I don't know why you would have read Cement at any point in your life, because, again, why would you have read that? It's such a weird book to have read. But if you haven't read it, I 100% suggest that you read along with us, because I promise you it will be much different and actually much better than you think it will end up being. Uh, So if you're planning on reading along with us, please be sure to pick it up through our affiliate links on our website, tiptoetolstore.com. We earn a little bit of money from qualifying purchases, and it is much appreciated. After spending uh, some dozens of pages reading about farming, uh, farming techniques, and uh, also law for some reason, and and Anna Karina, we're now moving on to the grown-up version where we just read about a, a man making a factory work for 300 pages. Cameron is about to triumph for the proletariat. My goodness, how could you joke about such a thing? Cancelled. <laughs> the Soviets are about to cancel me all the way to Siberia. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Sounds too... I'm not going <clears> to... <throat> all right. Before we let you go... <laughs> Before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons... So far, we've got Drew, Jeff, Janice, Anne, Emily, Jesse, Madeline, Alex, Daniel, Irini, Paige, Darren, Larkin, Lou, Brandon, Allison, Gary, Cole, Daniel, Jack, Lucy, Alex, and Roland. Podcasting, for some reason, is not free, and grad school, for yet another reason I don't understand, doesn't pay very well. So if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon.